One is plenty. Hey, how are you doing? What's up? I'm turning the music down while I talk. Can you believe it? Um, what is my hair doing? I had a comment earlier. Someone left a comment saying, oh, these streams are amazing. Apart from the way that you turn the music down when you talk. Oh, what? If I didn't do that, you wouldn't be able to hear me. You'd be leaving a comment going, oh, this stream is great, but I can't hear you talking over all that music. Oh, my goodness. That was you. Shout out to you. Thank you for your feedback. Very much appreciated. I was in. I was in Dripping Springs today. I went. I went to the uh, post office. You know, you do that sometimes. Uh, you know, to uh, drop off some of the last few uh, Alan Watts Wattsway vinyl packages. You know. Very nice. Uh, there's a guy in there. You know the way real recognize real. You know, you step in a place and the guy's like. You know, he's like, doesn't have his mask up, you know, he's like... You know, the people are like, checking to see if it's like, hmm, has that person got a mask? Is that, mm, maybe I'm okay with that mask? Yeah. He's a cool fella, you know, he's a cool old fella. He's like, I don't know, he's like 50. Grizzled, you know, he's been outside a lot. He spent a lot of time outside, he's got a cowboy hat on. He's like, hey, you musician? He said, bitch, I might be. 
I didn't say that. I said, uh, yes. Yes, you're yes, very, very right. I knew it. Like, What's your name? I told him my name, you know, and immediately he gets his phone out and, and uh, he types it in, you know, and, and the first thing that comes up is yesterday's stream. He presses play on it. I started yesterday's stream. I didn't even know. This weird thing, complete silence going, la, 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 or something. <laughs> Everyone in the post office is like, sort of like looking at this guy. <laughs> it's like, la, 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 coming out the fire. I was like, oh yeah, that's a live stream. I do two live streams a day, you know? Two a day. Well, you're a futuristic motherfucker, ain't you? Yeah, that's true. Anyway, it turned out like he worked on uh, on rodeos and such, like, you know, and he works on those bucking bronco, those like, uh, you know, the bars where people go in and ride a horse or something. Anyway, and his partner does music venues and he's like, you know, he's. Oh, yeah. And he's saying they're all reopening and how important it is they reopen. He says something to me and like, he said it to me. You know, sometimes sometimes someone says something. And you go, oh, okay, you're an angel. That's what you are. You're an angel in this here lifetime. He goes, looks at me, looks at me deep in the eyes. And he says, what you're doing is very important. He goes, the music, he goes, we have to have the music. He goes, I can't do the accents. My accent's terrible. He goes, he goes, music. He looks up and he goes, that's a song to God. Chills the way he said it. he looked right into my soul. That's a song to God. Like, ah, you're right, baby. That's so true. That's so true. And you know, like, man is a relig- religious animal. And even at this point in man's history, where much of man is like, I don't need no religion. I'm, I'm way beyond that. I'm very advanced. Man still wants to sing that song to God, baby. That thing is so important. Whether he knows what he's doing or not, you know. When they try and stop man singing to God, they try to stop that. They literally say some of these creeps. Oh, don't be singing. No singing. Minimize the singing. Oh, that might spread the Tom Hanks. Boy, you shut your filthy mouth. We will sing our song to God. We will communicate our joy. We will communicate with that most excellent aspect of everything that there is and what we came from and all that by Joe. You shut your filthy mouth. Newsome. Yo, I found uh, I saw a picture of that that, that governor from uh, California. You know the one who got caught going to a sexy dinner party. Actually, he's been telling everyone else wear a mask between bites. You go to a sexy dinner party. I look at this guy. He looked just like the Joker uh, when Tony Daniel drew him in Batman R.I.P. And I was like, how is it so many of these people, these creepy people in these political positions, they all they look like various incarnations of the Joker? What's with that? That lady one. They got the plastic surgery this year to make it. She just looks like the Jack Nicholson E, like one of the incarnations. Maybe they all have the same surgeon. Maybe that's what it is. And they just pull their face up by the ears or something. It makes them all look like that. Amazing. Anyway, smash that like. We're here for a reason today, brothers and sisters, and it's a beautiful reason. A reason of literature. A reason of literature by Joe. We're here for the Dune Wave Audio Book Club. We're doing Dune. It's Dune Day. It's Wednesday. That's Dune Day. Wednesday is Dune Day. I don't need to know there's a new version of Evernote while I'm streaming. Evernote, goodbye. My goodness, what is with these people? I spent like two hours last week turning off all notifications and some still keep peeking through. Can you believe it, brothers and sisters? Yo. 
Patrick Smith says, I like this Driven Springs post of his Cowboy Angel. I've had at least two experiences like that. One guy was a hitchhiker and gave me some incredible advice. I love them angels, you know? They're, they're all around the place. You'll meet them, you know? All you got to do is uh, just interact with your surroundings a bit and you'll, you'll come across an angel pretty quick. Like any RPG, you know what I mean? If you, if you go and like press A next to a guy, he might talk back at you and then he might have an interesting side quest. You might have a side quest to go and you'll never get the side quests if you don't talk to, to the interesting characters, you know? You gotta go talk to them interesting characters. By Joe! Patrick Smith says, I'm here for the talking as well. Good job. Good job. You got a bunch of that today, huh? Uh, smash that like. I don't think our notifications are going out again. I don't know why. Uh, post a link in a Discord. Post it on Twitter. Retweet it. Uh, post it on an Instagram story. All that. It is important that we bypass Susan. Who doesn't want you to experience the glory of the Dunewave Audio Book Club. No. I don't know what she wants, but she don't want that. But it doesn't matter because that's what we're getting. We're getting because we're powerful, you know? We're mighty and we're relentless. And do you know what nothing wants to stand in front of? Something relentless. That's what's up. Hey, what's up, Sajid? How you doing? How's your birthday week going? Joshua Tran says, what do I want for my birthday? To go back to Arrakis. Is it your birthday, Joshua Tran? Is it your birthday tonight? Let me know if it is. Uh, that would be very exciting if true. I do love a good birthday, you know? I love that birthday energy. Every minute something's being born and every minute something's dying and every minute we've got to celebrate that. Yo! Likes are going up. Hit that like. Every time a like is hit, they, they say one more person is, is viewing. It's only ever about as many people as likes as viewers. And, uh... I had a theory about that. You couldn't say, oh, look, it's 60 likes, but only 50 viewers, how that's possible, right? So if you're going to be strangulating someone and making it look like they're not as uh, as popping as they really are, that's how you would do it. Whoa. You know, if you're trying to gaslight people into thinking that they were not bigger than CNN, that's how you do it. It's always amazing to me. We've always got just as many likes as we have viewers. It's absolutely amazing. Or it could just be that we have the most engaged audience on all of YouTube. And that could be true too, because you are very engaged and Yukira the Don is very engaging. And you are very engaging too, God bless. I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. I must not fear. the mind killer. I want to hear a Morrissey version of that. There is a little death to bring total annihilation. Do with a Morrissey impression. God did not put me on this earth to do impressions, that's for sure. If he did, I'm letting him down. I must not fear. is the mind killer. Nah, I can't do it. Yo, what up, Cornius Focus? Says, thanks for doing this, man. I appreciate all of the motivation you provide. God bless. I appreciate you and your epic name. That is the name of a, of a character from an RPG of, of your life. I would get a side quest off Cornius Focus. 
that would be a very good side quest. I'm pretty sure you might even get to an extra area, an extra realm, maybe on top of a cloud. You know, you might get to go up a secret ladderway onto a cloud, into a cloud city. I want a cloud city side quest by Joe. Yeah. Word XP says your Marcus Aurelius is pretty good though. Hey, thanks. Good job, Marcus Aurelius was a kind of like half Brummy, half Welsh, half London transatlantic fellow, huh? Hey, listen to us. Let's listen to a Doom song and let's get all revved up. You want to get revved up? Who wants to get revved up with your boy? Oh, did I just really just. Oh, I did. Oh, I did. <sighs> Sometimes the cure of the dog. Make some noise. I must not fear. Fear yeah, is the mind killer. killer. I, I must, must not, not fear. fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I will permit it to pass over me and through me. And when it has gone past, I will turn the inner eye to see its path. Where the fear has gone, there will be nothing.
us in the face. Pain. What's in that box? Ask Brad Pitt. He knows. He knows about that box. With that pain in it. Alright, baby, let's get it. Alright, so we're get about to go in, in we're about to go, Andy Burrows, in we're about to go, Word XP, in we're about to go. Joshua Tran, is it your birthday or not? I was not able to see. Uh, before we do that, of course, we have to do the international high five. International high five. Very important. Very important ceremonial ceremonial aspect. Smash that like and let me know right now where on earth you may be. Unless you're somewhere else, and then in which case, tell me then. Where you are, and I want to I wanna recap. So we can read out the recaps. Recaps. We're on disc nine tonight of Dune. Disc 9, and we're kicking off book 2. Disc 9, book 2. Is it Joshua Tran's birthday? Is it? Is it? Joshua Tran, 24. Ah! Happy birthday, Josh Tran. Happy birthday, Josh Tran. You're 24. Which means you're a man. So you have to uh, go into the woods and kill something. That's what you have to do. You have to go into the woods, eat a psychedelic plant. Uh, you've got to be naked and have nothing but a stick. And you've got to come back with a head. And then you'll be allowed into society. If not, sorry, you're not allowed into society. You are cast out and you have to go, uh, you have to go live, um, you know, with the Fremen. That's what happens. Happy birthday. Yo! Tryout set on the last episode. Mori revealed Paul is not the Quizak Satarak. This episode, what? What? D-Man, Tri-State, letting the path take me. Nice, nice. Uh, Full Killer 3644, Maryland. Dip 5, Bay Area CA. What's cracking, yo? David Ewing, reawakened the way to wisdom. Do you know the way? Do you know the way? Yeah, yeah. Andy Burroughs, Paradise. Sheila Ferreira, Nashville. Lito died. We are Harkonians. We're Harkonians. Tra-la-la-la-la-la-la. We're Harkonians. Uh, Richard Young, Chicago. How's life, MAZ? Pretty good, baby. Thanks for asking. Uh, members time. Virginia Beach, Virginia. Fingers in the air. Pium, pium. Patrick Smith, The Hobbs, happy birthday, give me some spice. Free speech seller, last time on Dune, Paul tripped balls. Hey, that rhymes. What's in the box? What's in the box? I do believe it's pain. 
I do believe it's playing E.S. Taylor, London, O-N-C-A. Uh, D-Man, ha, ha, ha. That's not a good recap. Recaps have not been very good so far. Alec Moran, Dundee, Michigan. Hurrah. What's in the box? What's in the box? I do believe it's pain. I do believe it is pain. The day five, Paul released his immense ass and had trouble crying. I mean, that's one way of, of putting it. Yes, you know. Dune Arrakis Desert Planet. This is true. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it is. All right, baby. International high five. Sway to come. My memory is the early part where a guy put his hand in the gong jarvis. Is that a euphemism? Uh, D-Man. Bum, 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 Prince Jabrika's XV, Edmunds, WA, Prescience. Indeed, Prescience. Man. That's what he was crazy. It was all like uh, black holes and revelations by Jove. Hey, Sadie is in Wales. My neighbors are going to get a taste of MAZ. Yeah, they're going to get a taste of literature tonight because it's the audio book club. Hoyle Vartel Ichti. Now, Invind Imaun Evar High Pimp Pimp Ivani International. Now, yeah. Are you ready? Three, two, one. High five, Bajo. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah. Our Dirkog, Paub, Dirkivaur, Amnaidhan, Amnaur. A path to Betty Watt, to Betty Watt, and wait your thaw. She didn't get a copy of Betty Airy Waits now, yeah? She didn't get a copy of Betty Shadow Gumbrag. I'm lost on Bluthen. She went to America, yeah? I'm lost on Bluthen. She didn't get a Shadow Gumbrag. Demand in Amsterdam, Eva Griff, or Super Furry Animals, a Blind Dragon, three Petar Bluthen, and go, Rupert Velhana, yeah? Anyway. Translate that, Google. Maybe if I did this whole stream in, in Welsh, they, they wouldn't know what I was talking about and they wouldn't uh, derank my ass. Yo! God bless each and every one of you. Welcome to Dune Wave Audio Book Club, previously on Dune Desert Planet. Betrayal! Fat, horrible bastard. Turned out to be the father. Magic witch lady. Had a son. He could see the future. Oh shit. Dad got blown up. Exploding tooth. Order. You know what time it is. You know what time it is. It's Dune Wave. Audio book club time. It's the best time. 
more deep. When my father, the Padishah Emperor, heard of Duke Leto's death and the manner of it, he went into such a rage as we had never before seen. He blamed my mother and the compact forced on him to place a Bene Gesserit on the throne. He blamed the guild and the evil old baron. He blamed everyone in sight, not excepting even me, for he said I was a witch like all the others. And when I sought to comfort him, saying it was done according to an older law of self-preservation to which even the most ancient rulers gave allegiance, he sneered at me and asked if I thought him a weakling. I saw then that he had been aroused to this passion not by concern over the dead duke, but by what that death implied for all royalty. As I look back on it, I think there may have been some prescience in my father too, for it is certain that his line and Muad'Dib's shared common ancestry. In my father's house by the Princess Irulan. Now Harkonnen shall kill Harkonnen, Paul whispered. He had awakened shortly before nightfall, sitting up in the sealed and darkened still tent. As he spoke, he heard the vague stirrings of his mother where she slept against the tent's opposite wall. Paul glanced at the proximity detector on the floor, studying the dials illuminated in the blackness by phosphor tubes. It should be night soon, his mother said. Why don't you lift the tent shades? Paul realized then that her breathing had been different for some time, that she had lain silent in the darkness until certain he was awake. Lifting the shades wouldn't help, he said. There's been a storm, the tent's covered by sand. I'll dig us out soon. No sign of Duncan yet? None. Paul rubbed absently at the ducal signet on his thumb and a sudden rage against the very substance of this planet which had helped kill his father set him trembling. I heard the storm begin, Jessica said. The undemanding emptiness of her words helped restore some of his calm. His mind focused on the storm as he had seen it begin through the transparent end of their still tent. Cold dribbles of sand crossing the basin, then runnels and tails furrowing the sky. He had looked up to a rock spire, seen it change shape under the blast, becoming a low, cheddar-colored wedge. Sand funneled into their basin had shadowed the sky with dull curry, then blotted out all light as the tent was covered. Tent bows had creaked once as they accepted the pressure, then silence, broken only by the dim bellows wheezing of their sand snorkel pumping air from the surface. Try the receiver again, Jessica said. No use, he said. He found his still suit's water tube in its clip at his neck, drew a warm swallow into his mouth, and he thought that here he truly began an Arakeen existence living on reclaimed moisture from his own breath and body. It was flat and tasteless water, but it soothed his throat. Jessica heard Paul drinking, felt the slickness of her own still suit clinging to her body, but she refused to accept her thirst. 
To accept it would require awakening fully into the terrible necessities of Arrakis, where they must guard even fractional traces of moisture, hoarding the few drops in the tent's catch pockets, begrudging a breath wasted on the open air. So much easier to drift back down into sleep. But there had been a dream in this day's sleep, and she shivered at memory of it. She had held dreaming hands beneath sand flow where a name had been written. Duke Leto Atreides. The name had blurred with the sand and she had moved to restore it, but the first letter filled before the last was begun. The sand would not stop. Her dream became wailing, louder and louder. That ridiculous wailing, part of her mind had realized the sound was her own voice as a tiny child little more than a baby. A woman not quite visible to memory was going away. My unknown mother, Jessica thought. The Bene Gesserit who bore me and gave me to the sisters because that's what she was commanded to do. Was she glad to rid herself of a Herkonnen child? The place to hit them is in the spice, Paul said. How can he think of attack at a time like this? She asked herself. An entire planet full of spice, she said. How can you hit them there? She heard him stirring, the sound of their pack being dragged across the tent floor. It was sea power and air power on Caladan, he said. Here it's desert power. The Fremen are the key. His voice came from the vicinity of the tent's sphincter. Her Bene Gesserit training sensed in his tone an unresolved bitterness toward her. All his life he has been trained to hate Harkonnens, she thought. Now he finds he is Harkonnen because of me. How little he knows me. I was my duke's only woman. I accepted his life and his values even to defying my Bene Gesserit orders. The tent's glow tab came alight under Paul's hand, filled the domed area with green radiance. Paul crouched at the sphincter, his stillsuit hood adjusted for the open desert, forehead capped, mouth filter in place, nose plugs adjusted. Only his dark eyes were visible, a narrow band of face that turned once toward her and away. Secure yourself for the open he said, and his voice was blurred behind the filter. Jessica pulled the filter across her mouth, began adjusting her hood as she watched Paul break the tent seal. Sand rasped as he opened the sphincter, and a bird fizzle of grains ran into the tent before he could immobilize it with a static compaction tool. A hole grew in the sand wall as the tool realigned the grains. He slipped out and her ears followed his progress to the surface. What will we find out there? She wondered. Harkonnen troops and the Sardaukar, those are dangers we can expect, but what of the dangers we don't know? She thought of the compaction tool and the other strange instruments in the pack. Each of these tools suddenly stood in her mind as a sign of mysterious dangers. She felt then a hot breeze from surface sand touch her cheeks where they were exposed above the filter. Pass up the pack. It was Paul's voice, low and guarded. She moved to obey, heard the water leader John's gurgle as she shoved the pack across the floor. 
She peered upward, saw Paul framed against the stars. Here, he said, and reached down, pulled the pack to the surface. Now she saw only the circle of stars. They were like the luminous tips of weapons aimed down at her. A shower of meteors crossed her patch of night. The meteors seemed to her like a warning, like tiger stripes, like luminous grave slats clabbering her blood. And she felt the chill of the price on their heads. Hurry up, Paul said. I want to collapse the tent. A shower of sand from the surface brushed her left hand. How much sand will the hand hold? She asked herself. Shall I help you? Paul asked. No. She swallowed in a dry throat, slipped into the hole, felt static-packed sand rasp under her hands. Paul reached down, took her arm. She stood beside him on a smooth patch of starlit desert, stared around. Sand almost brimmed their basin, leaving only a dim lip of surrounding rock. She probed the farther darkness with her trained senses. Noise of small animals, birds, a fall of dislodged sand and faint creature sounds within it. Paul collapsing their tent, recovering it up the hole. Starlight displaced just enough of the night to charge each shadow with menace. She looked at patches of blackness. Black is a blind remembering, she thought. You listen for pack sounds, for the cries of those who hunted your ancestors in a past so ancient only your most primitive cells remember. The ears see, thrills see. Presently, Paul stood beside her, said. Duncan told me that if he was captured, he could hold out this long. We must leave here now. He shouldered the pack, crossed to the shallow lip of the basin, climbed to a ledge that looked down on open desert. Jessica followed automatically, noting how she now lived in her son's orbit. For now is my grief heavier than the sands of the seas, she thought. This world has emptied me of all but the oldest purpose, tomorrow's life. I live now for my young duke and the daughter yet to be. She felt the sand drag her feet as she climbed to Paul's side. He looked north across a line of rocks, studying a distant escarpment. The faraway rock profile was like an ancient battleship of the seas outlined by stars. The long swish of it lifted on an invisible wave with syllables of boomerang antennae, funnels arcing back, a pie-shaped upthrusting at the stern. An orange glare burst above the silhouette, and a line of brilliant purple cut downward toward the glare. Another line of purple, and another upthrusting orange glare. It was like an ancient naval battle, remembered shellfire, and the sight held them staring. Pillars of fire, Paul whispered. A ring of red eyes lifted over the distant rock. Lines of purple laced the sky. Jet flares and lace guns, Jessica said. The dust-reddened first moon of Arrakis lifted above the horizon to their left, and they saw a storm trail there, a ribbon of movement over the desert. It must be Harkonnen thopters hunting us, Paul said. The way they're cutting up the desert, it's as though they were making certain they stamped out whatever's there. The way you'd stamp out a nest of insects. 
or a nest of Atreides, Jessica said. We must seek cover, Paul said. We'll head south and keep to the rocks. If they caught us in the open... He turned, adjusting the pack to his shoulders. They're killing anything that moves. He took one step along the ledge and in that instant heard the low hiss of gliding aircraft, saw the dark shapes of ornithopters above them. My father once told me that respect for the truth comes close to being the basis for all morality. Something cannot emerge from nothing, he said. This is profound thinking if you understand how unstable the truth can be. From Conversations with Nuadib by the Princess Irulan. I have always prided myself on seeing things the way they truly are, Thufir Howard said. That's the curse of being a mentat. You can't stop analyzing your data. The leathered old face appeared composed in the pre-dawn dimness as he spoke. His sapho-stained lips were drawn into a straight line with radial creases spreading upward. A robed man squatted silently on sand across from Hawat, apparently unmoved by the words. The two crouched beneath a rock overhang that looked down on a wide, shallow sink. Dawn was spreading over the shattered outline of cliffs across the basin, touching everything with pink. It was cold under the overhang, a dry and penetrating chill left over from the night. There had been a warm wind just before dawn, but now it was cold. Howard could hear teeth chattering behind him among the few troopers remaining in his force. The man squatting across from Howard was a Fremen who had come across the sink in the first light of false dawn, skittering over the sand, blending into the dunes, his movements barely discernible. The Fremen extended a finger to the sand between them, drew a figure there. It looked like a bowl with an arrow spilling out of it. There are many Harkonnen patrols, he said. He lifted his finger, pointed upward across the cliffs that Howard and his men had descended. Howard nodded. Many patrols, yes. But still he did not know what this Fremen wanted, and this rankled. Mentat training was supposed to give a man the power to see motives. This had been the worst night of Howard's life. He had been at Simpo, a garrison village, buffer outpost for the former capital city, Carthag, when the reports of attack began arriving. At first he thought, it's a raid, the Harkonnens are testing. But report followed report faster and faster. Two legions landed at Carthag. Five legions, fifty brigades, attacking the Duke's main base at Arakin. A legion at Arsunt. Two battle groups at Splintered Rock. Then the reports became more detailed. There were Imperial Sardaukar among the attackers, possibly two legions of them and it became clear that the invaders knew precisely which weight of arms to send where. Precisely. Superb intelligence. Howard's shocked fury had mounted until it threatened the smooth functioning of his mentat capabilities. The size of the attack struck his mind like a physical blow. Now, 
Hiding beneath a bit of desert rock, he nodded to himself, pulled his torn and slashed tunic around him as though warding off the cold shadows. The size of the attack. He had always expected their enemy to hire an occasional lighter from the guild for probing raids. That was an ordinary enough gambit in this kind of house-to-house -house warfare. Lighters landed and took off on Arrakis regularly to transport the spice for House Atreides. Howard had taken precautions against random raids by false spice lighters. For a full attack, they'd expected no more than ten brigades. But there were more than two thousand ships down on Arrakis at the last count. Not just lighters, but frigates, scouts, monitors, crushers, troop carriers, dump boxes. More than a hundred brigades. Ten legions. The entire spice income of Arrakis for fifty years might just cover the cost of such a venture. It might. I underestimated what the Baron was willing to spend in attacking us, Howard thought. I failed my duke. Then there was the matter of the traitor. I will live long enough to see her strangled, he thought. I should have killed that Bene Gesserit witch when I had the chance. There was no doubt in his mind who had betrayed them. The Lady Jessica. She fitted all the facts available. Your man Gurney Halleck and part of his force are safe with our smuggler friends, the Fremen said. Good. So Gurney will get off this hell planet. We're not all gone. Howard glanced back at the huddle of his men. He had started the night just past with three hundred of his finest. Of those, and even twenty remained, and half of them were wounded. Some of them slept now, standing up, leaning against the rock, sprawled on the sand beneath the rock. Their last thopter, the one they'd been using as a ground-effect machine to carry their wounded, had given out just before dawn. They had cut it up with laser guns and hidden the pieces, then worked their way down into this hiding place at the edge of the basin. Howard had only a rough idea of their location, some two hundred kilometers southeast of Arakin. The main traveled ways between the shield wall Siech communities were somehow south of them. The Fremen across from Howard threw back his hood and still suit cap to reveal sandy hair and beard. The hair was combed straight back from a high, thin forehead. He had the unreadable total blue eyes of the spice diet. Beard and moustache were stained at one side of the mouth, his hair matted there by pressure of the looping catch tube from his nose plugs. The man removed his plugs, readjusted them. He rubbed at a scar beside his nose. If you cross the sink here this night, the Fremen said, you must not use shields. There is a break in the wall. He turned on his heels, pointed south. There, and it is open sand down to the erg. Shields will attract a... He hesitated. Worm. They don't often come in here, but a shield will bring one every time. He said worm, Howard thought. He was going to say something else. What? And what does he want of us? Howard sighed. He could not recall ever before being this tired. It was a muscle weariness that energy pills were unable to ease. Those damnable Sardaukar. With a self-accusing bitterness, he faced the thought of the soldier fanatics 
and the imperial treachery they represented. His own Mentat assessment of the data told him how little chance he had ever to present evidence of this treachery before the High Council of the Lanzrat, where justice might be done. Do you wish to go to the smugglers? The Fremen asked. Is it possible? The way is long. Fremen don't like to say no, Idoha had told him once. Howard said, You haven't yet told me whether your people can help my wounded. They are wounded. The same damned answer every time. We know they're wounded, Howard snapped. That's not the... Peace, friend, the Fremen cautioned. What do your wounded say? Are there those among them who can see the water need of your tribe? We haven't talked about water, Howat said. We... I can understand your reluctance, the Fremen said. They are your friends, your tribesmen. Do you have water? Not enough. The Fremen gestured to Howat's tunic, the skin exposed beneath it. You were caught in search without your suits. You must make a water decision, friend. Can we hire your help? The Fremen shrugged. You have no water. He glanced at the group behind Howat. How many of your wounded would you spend? Howat fell silent, staring at the man. He could see as a mentat that their communication was out of phase. Word sounds were not being linked up here in the normal manner. I am Thufir Hawat, he said. I can speak for my duke. I will make promissory commitment now for your help. I wish a limited form of help, preserving my force long enough only to kill a traitor who thinks herself beyond vengeance. You wish our siding in a vendetta? The vendetta I'll handle myself. I wish to be freed of responsibility for my wounded, that I may get about it. The Fremen scowled. How can you be responsible for your wounded? They are their own responsibility. The water's at issue, Thufir Hawat. Would you have me take that decision away from you? The man put a hand to a weapon concealed beneath his robe. Hawat tensed, wondering, is there betrayal here? What do you fear? The Fremen demanded. These people and their disconcerting directness. Howard spoke cautiously. There's a price on my head. Ah, the Fremen removed his hand from his weapon. You think we have the Byzantine corruption? You don't know us. The Harkonnens have not water enough to buy the smallest child among us. But they had the price of guild passage for more than 2,000 fighting ships, Howard thought and the size of that price still staggered him. We both fight Harkonnens, Howard said. Should we not share the problems and ways of meeting the battle issue? We are sharing, the Fremen said. I have seen you fight Harkonnens. You are good. There have been times I'd have appreciated your arm beside me. Say where my arm may help you, Howard said. Who knows, the Fremen asked. There are Harkonnen forces everywhere. But you still have not made the water decision, or put it to your wounded. I must be cautious, Howard told himself. There's a thing here that's not understood. He said, Will you show me your way, the Arakeen way? Stranger thinking, the Fremen said, and there was a sneer in his tone. He pointed to the northwest across the clifftop. 
We watched you come across the sand last night. He lowered his arm. You keep your force on the slip face of the dunes. Bad. You have no still suits, no water. You will not last long. The ways of Arrakis don't come easily, Howard said. Truth, but we've killed Harkonnens. What do you do with your own wounded? Howard demanded. Does a man not know when he is worth saving? The Fremen asked. Your wounded know you have no water. He tilted his head, looking sideways up at Howard. This is clearly a time for water decision. Both wounded and unwounded must look to the tribe's future. The tribe's future, Howard thought, the tribe of Atreides. There's sense in that. He forced himself to the question he had been avoiding. Have you word of my duke or his son? Unreadable blue eyes stared upward into Howard's. Word? The fate, Howard snapped. Fate is the same for everyone, the Fremen said. Your duke, it is said, has met his fate. As to the Lisan al-Gaib, his son, that is in Liat's hands, Liat has not said. I knew the answer without asking, Howard thought. He glanced back at his men. They were all awake now. They had heard. They were staring out across the sand, the realization in their expressions. There was no returning to Caladan for them. And now Arrakis was lost. Howat turned back to the Fremen. Have you heard of Duncan Idaho? He was in the great house when the shield went down, the Fremen said. This I've heard, no more. She dropped the shield and let in the Harkonnens, he thought. I was the one who sat with my back to a door. How could she do this when it meant turning also against her own son? But who knows how a Bene Gesserit witch thinks, if you can call it thinking. Howard tried to swallow in a dry throat. When will you hear about the boy? We know little of what happens in Arakin, the Fremen said. He shrugged. Who knows? You have ways of finding out. Perhaps... The Fremen rubbed at the scar beside his nose. Tell me, Thufir Hawat, do you have knowledge of the big weapons the Harkonnens used? The artillery, Hawat thought bitterly. Who could have guessed they'd use artillery in this day of shields? You refer to the artillery they used to trap our people in the caves, he said. I've theoretical knowledge of such explosive weapons. Any man who retreats into a cave which has only one opening deserves to die, the Fremen said. Why do you ask about these weapons? Liet wishes it. Is that what he wants from us? Howard wondered. He said, Did you come here seeking information about the big guns? Liet wished to see one of the weapons for himself. Then you should just go take one, Howard sneered. Yes, the Fremen said. We took one. We have it hidden where Stilgar can study it for Liet, and where Liet can see it for himself, if he wishes. But I doubt he'll want to. The weapon is not a very good one. Poor design for Arrakis. You took one? 
Hawat asked. It was a good fight, the Fremen said. We lost only two men and spilled the water for more than a hundred of theirs. There were Sardokar at every gun, Hawat thought. This desert madman speaks casually of losing only two men against Sardokar. We would not have lost the two except for those others fighting beside the Harkonnens, the Fremen said. Some of those are good fighters. One of Howard's men limped forward, looked down at the squatting Fremen. Are you talking about Sardukar? He's talking about Sardukar, Howard said. Sardukar, the Fremen said, and there appeared to be glee in his voice. Ah, so that's what they are. This was a good night indeed. Sardukar, which legion do you know? We don't know, Howard said. Sardukar, the Fremen mused. Yet they wear Harkonnen clothing. Is that not strange? The Emperor does not wish it known he fights against a great house, Howard said. But you know they are Sardukar. Who am I? Howard asked bitterly. You are Thufir Howard, the man said matter-of-factly. Well, we would have learned it in time. We've sent three of them captive to be questioned by Liet's men. Howard's aide spoke slowly, disbelief in every word. You captured Sardukar? Only three of them, the Fremen said. They fought well. If only we'd had the time to link up with these Fremen, Howard thought. It was a sour lament in his mind. If only we could have trained them and armed them, great mother, what a fighting force we'd have had. Perhaps you delay because of worry over the Lisan al-Gaib, the Fremen said. If he is truly the Lisan al-Gaib, harm cannot touch him. Do not spend thoughts on a matter which has not been proved. I serve the Lisan al-Gaib, Howard said. His welfare is my concern. I've pledged myself to this. You are pledged to his water? Howard glanced at his aide, who was still staring at the Fremen, returned his attention to the squatting figure. To his water, yes. You wish to return to Arakin, to the place of his water? To, yes, to the place of his water. Why did you not say at first it was a water matter? The Fremen stood up, seated his nose plugs firmly. Howard motioned with his head for his aid to return to the others. With a tired shrug, the man obeyed. Howard heard a low-voiced conversation arise among the men. The Fremen said, There is always a way to water. Behind Howard, a man cursed. Howard's aide called, Thufer, Arki just died. The Fremen put a fist to his ear. The bond of water, it's a sign. He stared at Howard. We have a place nearby for accepting the water. Shall I call my men? The aide returned to Howard's side, said, Thufir, a couple of the men left wives in Arakeen. They're, well, you know how it is at a time like this. The Fremen still held his fist to his ear. Is it the bond of water, Thufir Howard? He demanded. Howard's mind was racing. 
He sensed now the direction of the Fremen's words, but feared the reaction of the tired men under the rock overhang when they understood it. The bond of water, Howard said. Let our tribes be joined, the Fremen said, and he lowered his fist. As though that were the signal, four men slid and dropped down from the rocks above them. They darted back under the overhang, rolled the dead man in a loose robe, lifted him and began running with him along the cliff wall to the right. Spurts of dust lifted around their running feet. It was over before Howard's tired men could gather their wits. The group with the body hanging like a sack in its enfolding robe was gone around a turn in the cliff. One of Howard's men shouted, Where are they going with Arky? He was... They're taking him to... Bury him, Howard said. Fremen don't bury their dead, the men barked. Don't you try any tricks on us, Thufer. We know what they do. Arky was one of... Paradise were sure for a man who died in the service of Lisan al-Gaib, the Fremen said. If it is the Lisan al-Gaib you serve as you have said it, why raise mourning cries? The memory of one who died in this fashion will live as long as the memory of man endures. But Howard's men advanced, angry looks on their faces. One had captured a lace gun. He started to draw it. Stop right where you are, Howard barked. He fought down the sick fatigue that gripped his muscles. These people respect our dead. Customs differ, but the meaning's the same. They're going to render Arky down for his water. The man with the lace gun snarled. Is it that your men wish to attend the ceremony? The Fremen asked. He doesn't even see the problem, Howard thought. The naivete of the Fremen was frightening. They're concerned for a respected comrade, Howard said. We will treat your comrade with the same reverence we treat our own, the Fremen said. This is the bond of water. We know the rights. A man's flesh is his own. The water belongs to the tribe. Howard spoke quickly as the man with the lace gun advanced another step. Will you now help our wounded? One does not question the bond, the Fremen said. We will do for you what a tribe does for its own. First we must get all of you suited and see to the necessities. The man with the lace gun hesitated. Howard's aide said, are we buying help with Arky's water? Not buying, Howard said. We've joined these people. Customs differ, one of his men muttered. Howard began to relax. And they'll help us get to Arakin? We will kill Harkonnens, the Fremen said. He grinned. And Sardokar. He stepped backward, cupped his hands beside his ears, and tipped his head back, listening. Presently he lowered his hands, said, An aircraft comes. Conceal yourselves beneath the rock and remain motionless. At a gesture from Howat, his men obeyed. The Fremen took Howat's arm, pressed him back with the others. We will fight in the time of fighting, the man said. He reached beneath his robes, brought out a small cage, lifted a creature from it. Howat recognized a tiny bat. The bat turned its head, and how it saw its blue-within-blue blue eyes. The Fremen stroked the bat, soothing it, crooning to it. He bent over the animal's head, allowed a drop of saliva to fall from his tongue into the bat's upturned mouth. 
The bat stretched its wings but remained on the Fremen's opened hand. The man took a tiny tube, held it beside the bat's head, and chattered into the tube. Then, lifting the creature high, he threw it upward. The bat swooped away beside the cliff and was lost to sight. The Fremen folded the cage, thrust it beneath his rope. Again he bent his head, listening. They quarter the high country, he said. One wonders who they seek up there. It's known that we retreated in this direction, Howard said. One should never presume one is the sole object of a hunt, the Fremen said. Watch the other side of the basin, you will see a thing. Time passed. Some of Howard's men stirred, whispering. Remain silent as frightened animals, the Fremen hissed. Howard discerned movement near the opposite cliff, flitting blurs of tan on tan. My little friend carried his message, the Fremen said. He is a good messenger, day or night. I'll be unhappy to lose that one. The movement across the sink faded away. On the entire four to five kilometer expanse of sand, nothing remained but the growing pressure of the day's heat, blurred columns of rising air. Be most silent now, the Fremen whispered. A file of plodding figures emerged from a break in the opposite cliff, headed directly across the sink. To Howat they appeared to be Fremen, but a curiously inept band. He counted six men making heavy going of it over the dunes. A thwock-thwock of ornithopter wings sounded high to the right behind Howard's group. The craft came over the cliff wall above them, and a Trades thopter with Harkonnen battle colors splashed on it. The thopter swooped toward the men crossing the sink. The group there stopped on a dune crest, waved. The thopter circled once over them in a tight curve, came back for a dust-shrouded landing in front of the Fremen. Five men swarmed from the thopter, and Howat saw the dust-repellent shimmering of shields and, in their motions, the hard competence of Sardaukar. Aye, they use their stupid shields, the Fremen beside Howat hissed. He glanced toward the open south wall of the sink. They are Sardaukar, Howat whispered. Good! The Sardaukar approached the waiting group of Fremen in an enclosing half-circle. Sun glinted on blades held ready. The Fremen stood in a compact group, apparently indifferent. Abruptly, the sand around the two groups sprouted Fremen. They were at the ornithopter, then in it. Where the two groups had met at the dune crest, a dust cloud partly obscured violent motion. Presently, dust settled. Only Fremen remained standing. They left only three men in their thopter. The Fremen beside Hawat said, That was fortunate. I don't believe we had to damage the craft in taking it. Behind Hawat, one of his men whispered, Those were Sardaukar. Did you notice how well they fought? The Fremen asked. Hawat took a deep breath. He smelled the burned dust around him, felt the heat, the dryness. In a voice to match that dryness, he said, Yes, they fought well. Indeed. The captured thopter took off with a lurching flap of wings, angled upward to the south in a steep, wing-tucked climb. 
So these Fremen can handle thopters, too, Howard thought. On the distant dune, a Fremen waved a square of green cloth. Once, twice. More come, the Fremen beside Howard barked. Be ready. I'd hoped to have us away without more inconvenience. Inconvenience, Howard thought. He saw two more thopters swooping from high in the west onto an area of sand suddenly devoid of visible Fremen. Only eight splotches of blue. The bodies of the Sardukar in Harkonnen uniforms remained at the scene of violence. Another thopter glided in over the cliff wall above Howat. He drew in a sharp breath as he saw it, a big troop carrier. It flew with the slow spread wing heaviness of a full load, like a giant bird coming to its nest. In the distance, the purple finger of a lace gun beam flicked from one of the diving thopters. It laced across the sand, raising a sharp trail of dust. The cowards! The Fremen beside Howard rasped. The troop carrier settled toward the patch of blue-clad bodies. Its wings crept out to full reach, began the cupping action of a quick stop. Howard's attention was caught by a flash of sun on metal to the south, a thopter plummeting there in a power dive, wings folded flat against its sides, its jets a golden flare against the dark silvered grey of the sky. It plunged like an arrow toward the troop carrier, which was unshielded because of the laser gun activity around it. Straight into the carrier, the diving thopter plunged. A flaming roar shook the basin. Rocks tumbled from the cliff walls all around. A geyser of red-orange shot skyward from the sand where the carrier and its companion thopters had been, everything there caught in the flame. It was the Fremen who took off in that captured thopter, Howard thought. He deliberately sacrificed himself to get that carrier. Great mother, what are these Fremen? A reasonable exchange, said the Fremen beside Howard. There must have been three hundred men in that carrier. Now we must see to their water and make plans to get another aircraft. He started to step out of their rock-shadowed concealment. A rain of blue uniforms came over the cliff wall in front of him, falling in low suspenser slowness. In the flashing instant, Howard had time to see that they were Sardaukar, hard faces set in battle frenzy, that they were unshielded and each carried a knife in one hand, a stunner in the other. A thrown knife caught Howard's Fremen companion in the throat, hurling him backward, twisting face down. Howard had only time to draw his own knife before blackness of a stunner projectile felled him. Muad'Dib could indeed see the future, but you must understand the limits of this power. Think of sight. You have eyes, yet cannot see without light. If you are on the floor of a valley, you cannot see beyond your valley. Just so, Muad'Dib could not always choose to look across the mysterious terrain. He tells us that a single obscure decision of prophecy, perhaps the choice of one word over another, could change the entire aspect of the future. He tells us, The vision of time is broad, but when you pass through it, time becomes a narrow door. And always, he fought the temptation to choose a clear, safe course, warning, that path leads ever down into stagnation. 
from Arrakis Awakening by the Princess Irulan. As the Onithopters glided out of the night above them, Paul grabbed his mother's arm, snapped, Don't move! Then he saw the lead craft in the moonlight, the way its wings cupped to break for landing, the reckless dash of the hands at the controls. It's Idaho, he breathed. The craft and its companions settled into the basin like a covey of birds coming to nest. Idaho was out of his thopter and running toward them before the dust settled. Two figures in Fremen robes followed him. Paul recognized one, the tall, sandy-bearded Kynes. This way, Kynes called, and he veered left. Behind Kynes, other Fremen were throwing fabric covers over their ornithopters. The craft became a row of shallow dunes. Idaho skidded to a stop in front of Paul, saluted. My lord, the Fremen have a temporary hiding place nearby where we... What about that back there? Paul pointed to the violence above the distant cliff, the jet flares, the purple beams of lace guns lacing the desert. A rare smile touched Idaho's round, placid face. My lord, sire, I've left them a little, sir. Glaring white light filled the desert, bright as a sun, etching their shadows onto the rock floor of the ledge. In one sweeping motion, Idaho had Paul's arm in one hand, Jessica's shoulder in the other, hurling them down off the ledge into the basin. They sprawled together in the sand as the roar of an explosion thundered over them. Its shockwave tumbled chips off the rock ledge they had vacated. Idaho sat up, brushed sand from himself. Not the family atomics, Jessica said. I thought... You planted a shield back there, Paul said. A big one turned to full force, Idaho said. A laser gun beam touched it and... He shrugged. Subatomic fusion, Jessica said. That's a dangerous weapon. Not weapon, milady. Defense. That scum will think twice before using laser guns another time. The Fremen from the ornithopters stopped above them. One called in a low voice. We should get under cover, friends. Paul got to his feet as Idaho helped Jessica up. That blast will attract considerable attention, sire, Idaho said. Sire, Paul thought. The word had such a strange sound when directed at him. Sire had always been his father. He felt himself touched briefly by his powers of prescience. Seeing himself infected by the wild race consciousness that was moving the human universe toward chaos. The vision left him shaken, and he allowed Idaho to guide him along the edge of the basin to a rock projection. Fremen there were opening a way down into the sand with their compaction tools. May I take your pack, sire? Idaho asked. It's not heavy, Duncan, Paul said. You have no body shield, Idaho said. Do you wish mine? He glanced at the distant cliff. Not likely there'll be any more laser gun activity about. Keep your shield, Duncan. Your right arm is shield enough for me. Jessica saw the way the praise took effect. How Idaho moved closer to Paul, and she thought, Such a sure hand my son has with his people. The Fremen removed a rock plug that opened a passage down into the native basement complex of the desert. A camouflage cover was rigged for the opening. This way, one of the Fremen said, and he led them down rock steps into darkness. Behind them, the cover blotted out the moonlight. 
a dim green glow came alive ahead, revealing the steps and rock walls, a turn to the left. Robed Fremen were all around them now, pressing downward. They rounded the corner, found another down-slanting passage. It opened into a rough cave chamber. Kine stood before them, Jebba Hood thrown back, the neck of his steel suit glistening in the green light. His long hair and beard were must. The blue eyes without whites were a darkness under heavy brows. In the moment of encounter, Kynes wondered at himself, Why am I helping these people? It's the most dangerous thing I've ever done. It could doom me with them. Then he looked squarely at Paul, seeing the boy who had taken on the mantle of manhood, masking grief, suppressing all except the position that now must be assumed, the dukedom. And Kynes realized in that moment the dukedom still existed, and solely because of this youth. And this was not a thing to be taken lightly. Jessica glanced once around the chamber, registering it on her senses in the Bene Gesserit way, a laboratory, a civil place full of angles and squares in the ancient manner. This is one of the imperial ecological testing stations my father wanted as advance bases, Paul said. His father wanted, Kynes thought. And again Kynes wondered at himself, am I foolish to aid these fugitives? Why am I doing it? It'd be so easy to take them now, to buy the Harkonnen trust with them. Paul followed his mother's example, gestalting the room, seeing the workbench down one side, the walls of featureless rock. Instruments lined the bench, dials glowing, wire grid-X planes with fluting glass emerging from them. An ozone smell permeated the place. Some of the Fremen moved on around a concealing angle in the chamber, and new sounds started there. Machine coughs, the whinnies of spinning belts and multi-drives. Paul looked to the end of the room, saw cages with small animals in them stacked against the wall. You've recognized this place correctly, Kine said. For what would you use such a place, Paul Atreides? To make this planet a fit place for humans, Paul said. Perhaps that's why I helped them, Kynes thought. The machine sounds abruptly hummed away to silence. Into this void there came a thin animal squeak from the cages. It was cut off abruptly as though in embarrassment. Paul returned his attention to the cages, saw that the animals were brown-winged bats. An automatic feeder extended from the side wall across the cages. A Fremen emerged from the hidden area of the chamber, spoke to Kynes. Yet, the field generator equipment is not working. I am unable to mask us from proximity detectors. Can you repair it? Kynes asked. Not quickly. The parts? The man shrugged. Yes, Kynes said. Then we'll do without machinery. Get a hand pump for air out to the surface. Immediately, the man hurried away. Kynes turned back to Paul. You have a good answer. Jessica marked the easy rumble of the man's voice. It was a royal voice, accustomed to command. And she had not missed the reference to him as Liet. Liet was the Fremen alter ego, the other face of the tame planetologist. We're most grateful for your help, Dr. Kynes, she said. Mm, we'll see, Kynes said. 
he nodded to one of his men. Spice coffee in my quarters, Shamir. At once, Laird, the man said. Kynes indicated an arched opening in the side wall of the chamber. If you please. Jessica allowed herself a regal nod before accepting. She saw Paul give a hand signal to Idaho, telling him to mount guard here. The passage, two paces deep, opened through a heavy door into a square office lighted by golden glow globes. Jessica passed her hand across the door as she entered, was startled to identify Plastille. Paul stepped three paces into the room, dropped his pack to the floor. He heard the door close behind him, studied the place. About eight meters to a side, walls of natural rock, curry-colored, broken by metal filing cabinets on their right. A low desk with milk-glass top shot full of yellow bubbles occupied the room's center. Four suspenser chairs ringed the desk. Kynes moved around Paul, held a chair for Jessica. She sat down, noting the way her son examined the room. Paul remained standing for another eye blink. A faint anomaly in the room's air currents told him there was a secret exit to their right, behind the filing cabinets. "'Will you sit down, Paul Atreides?' Kynes asked. "'How carefully he avoids my title,' Paul thought. But he accepted the chair, remained silent while Kynes sat down. You sense that Arrakis could be a paradise, Kine said. Yet, as you see, the Imperium sends here only its trained hatchetmen, its seekers after the spice. Paul held up his thumb with its ducal signet. Do you see this ring? Yes. Do you know its significance? Jessica turned sharply to stare at her son. Your father lies dead in the ruins of Arakin. Kynes said. You are technically the Duke. I am a soldier of the Imperium, Paul said. Technically a hatchet man. Kynes' face darkened. Even with the Emperor's Sardaukar standing over your father's body? The Sardaukar, one thing, the legal source of my authority is another, Paul said. Arrakis has its own way of determining who wears the mantle of authority, Kynes said. And Jessica, turning back to look at him, thought, There's steel in this man that no one has taken the temper out of. And we've need of steel. Paul's doing a dangerous thing. Paul said, The Sardaukar on Arrakis are a measure of how much our beloved emperor feared my father. Now I will give the Padisha emperor reasons to fear the... Lad, Kine said, There are things you don't... You will address me as sire or my lord, Paul said. Gently, Jessica thought. Kine stared at Paul, and Jessica noted the glint of admiration in the planetologist's face, the touch of humor there. Sire, Kine said. I am an embarrassment to the emperor, Paul said. I am an embarrassment to all who would divide Arrakis as their spoil. As I live, I shall continue to be such an embarrassment that I stick in their throats and choke them to death. Words, Kynes said. Paul stared at him. Presently, Paul said, You have a legend of the Lisan al-Gaib here, the voice from the outer world, the one who will lead the Fremen to paradise. Your men have superstition, Kynes said. 
Perhaps, Paul agreed. Yet, perhaps not. Superstitions sometimes have strange roots and stranger branchings. You have a plan, Kine said. This much is obvious, sire. Could your Fremen provide me with proof positive that the Sardukar are here in Harkonnen uniform? Quite likely. The Emperor will put a Harkonnen back in power here, Paul said. Perhaps even Beast Raban. Let him. Once he has involved himself beyond escaping his guilt, let the Emperor face the possibility of a bill of particulars laid out before the Lancerad. Let him answer there where... Paul, Jessica said. Granted that the Lancerad High Council accepts your case, Kine said. There could be only one outcome. General warfare between the Imperium and the Great Houses. Chaos, Jessica said. But I'd present my case to the Emperor, Paul said, and give him an alternative to chaos. Jessica spoke in a dry tone. Blackmail? One of the tools of statecraft, as you've said yourself, Paul said. And Jessica heard the bitterness in his voice. The Emperor has no sons, only daughters. You'd aim for the throne? Jessica asked. The Emperor will not risk having the Imperium shattered by total war, Paul said. Planets blasted, disorder everywhere, he'll not risk that. This is a desperate gamble you propose, Kynes said. What do the great houses of the Lancerad fear most, Paul asked. They fear most what is happening here right now on Arrakis, the Sardaukar picking them off one by one. That's why there is a Lancerad. This is the glue of the Great Convention. Only in union do they match the Imperial forces. But there, this is what they fear, Paul said. Arrakis would become a rallying cry. Each of them would see himself in my father, cut out of the herd and killed. Kynes spoke to Jessica. Would his plan work? I'm no mentat, Jessica said. But you are Bene Gesserit. She shot a probing stare at him, said, His plan has good points and bad points, as any plan would at this stage. A plan depends as much upon execution as it does upon concept. Law is the ultimate science, Paul quoted. Thus it reads above the Emperor's door. I propose to show him law. And I'm not sure I could trust the person who conceived this plan, Kynes said. Arrakis has its own plan that we... From the throne, Paul said, I could make a paradise of Arrakis with the wave of a hand. This is the coin I offer for your support. Kynes stiffened. My loyalty is not for sale, sire. Paul stared across the desk at him, meeting the cold glare of those blue-within-blue blue eyes, studying the bearded face, the commanding appearance. A harsh smile touched Paul's lips, and he said, Well spoken. I apologize. Kynes met Paul's stare and presently said, No Harkonnen ever admitted error. Perhaps you're not like them, Atreides. It could be a fault in their education, Paul said. You say you're not for sale, but I believe I've the coin you'll accept. For your loyalty, I offer my loyalty to you. Totally, 
My son has the Atreides sincerity, Jessica thought. He has that tremendous, almost naive honor, and what a powerful force that truly is. She saw that Paul's words had shaken Kynes. This is nonsense, Kynes said. You're just a boy, and I'm the Duke, Paul said. I'm an Atreides. No Atreides has ever broken such a bond. Kynes swallowed. When I say totally, Paul said, I mean without reservation, I would give my life for you. Sire, Kynes said. And the word was torn from him, but Jessica saw that he was not now speaking to a boy of fifteen, but to a man, to a superior. Now Kynes meant the word. In this moment he'd give his life for Paul, she thought. How did the Atreides accomplish this thing so quickly, so easily? I know you mean this, Kynes said, yet the Harkon... The door behind Paul slammed open. He whirled to see reeling violence, shouting, the clash of steel, wax image faces grimacing in the passage. With his mother beside him, Paul leaped for the door, seeing Idaho blocking the passage, his blood-pitted eyes there visible through a shield blur, claw hands beyond him, arcs of steel chopping futilely at the shield. There was the orange firemouth of a stunner repelled by the shield. Idaho's blades were through it all, flick-flicking, red dripping from them. Then Kynes was beside Paul, and they threw their weight against the door. Paul had one last glimpse of Idaho standing against a swarm of Harkonnen uniforms, his jerking, controlled staggers, the black goat hair with a red blossom of death in it. Then the door was closed, and there came a snick as Kynes threw the bolts. I appear to have decided, Kynes said. Someone detected your machinery before it was shut down, Paul said. He pulled his mother away from the door, met the despair in her eyes. I should have suspected trouble when the coffee failed to arrive, Kynes said. You've a bolt hole out of here, Paul said. Shall we use it? Kynes took a deep breath, said. This door should hold for at least twenty minutes against all but a lace gun. They'll not use a lace gun for fear we've shields on this side, Paul said. Those were Sardaukar in Harkonnen uniform, Jessica whispered. They could hear pounding on the door now, rhythmic blows. Kynes indicated the cabinets against the right-hand wall, said, This way. He crossed to the first cabinet, opened a drawer, manipulated a handle within it. The entire wall of cabinets swung open to expose the black mouth of a tunnel. This door also is plasteel, Kynes said. You were well prepared, Jessica said. We've lived under the Harkonnens for eighty years, Kynes said. He herded them into the darkness, closed the door. In the sudden blackness, Jessica saw a luminous arrow on the floor ahead of her. Kynes' voice came from behind them. We'll separate here. This wall is tougher. It'll stand for at least an hour. Follow the arrows like that one on the floor. They'll be extinguished by your passage. They lead through a maze to another exit where I've secreted a thopter. There's a storm across the desert tonight. Your only hope is to run for that storm, dive into the top of it, ride with it. My people have done this in stealing thopters. If you stay high in the storm, you'll survive. What of you? Paul asked. I'll try to escape another way. If I'm captured, well, I'm still Imperial Planetologist. I can say I was your captive. Running like cowards, Paul thought. But how else can I live to avenge my father? He turned to face the door. Jessica heard him move, said, 
Duncan's dead, Paul. You saw the wound. You can do nothing for him. I'll take full payment for them all one day, Paul said. Not unless you hurry now, Kind said. Paul felt the man's hand on his shoulder. Where will we meet, Kynes? Paul asked. I'll send Fremen searching for you. The storm's path is known. Hurry now, and the Great Mother give you speed and luck. They heard him go, a scrambling in the blackness. Jessica found Paul's hand, pulled him gently. We must not get separated, she said. Yes. He followed her across the first arrow, seeing it go black as they touched it. Another arrow beckoned ahead. They crossed it, saw it extinguish itself, saw another arrow ahead. They were running now. Plans within plans, within plans, within plans, Jessica thought. Have we become part of someone else's plan now? The arrows led them around turnings, past side openings only dimly sensed in the faint luminescence. Their way slanted downward for a time, then up, ever up. They came finally to steps, rounded a corner, and were brought short by a glowing wall with a dark handle visible in its center. Paul pressed the handle. The wall swung away from them. Light flared to reveal a rock-hewn cavern with an ornithopter squatting in its center. A flat gray wall with a door sign on it loomed beyond the aircraft. Where did Kynes go? Jessica asked. He did what any good guerrilla leader would, Paul said. He separated us into two parties and arranged that he couldn't reveal where we are if he's captured. He won't really know. Paul drew her into the room, noting how their feet kicked up dust on the floor. No one's been here for a long time, he said. He seemed confident the Fremen could find us, she said. I share that confidence. Paul released her hand, crossed to the ornithopter's left door, opened it, and secured his pack in the rear. This ship's proximity masked, he said. Instrument panel has remote door control, light control. Eighty years under the Harkonnens taught them to be thorough. Jessica leaned against the craft's other side, catching her breath. The Harkonnens will have a covering force over this area, she said. They're not stupid. She considered her direction sense, pointed right. The storm we saw is that way. Paul nodded, fighting an abrupt reluctance to move. He knew its cause, but found no help in the knowledge. Somewhere this night he had passed a decision nexus into the deep unknown. He knew the time area surrounding them, but the here and now existed as a place of mystery. It was as though he had seen himself from a distance go out of sight down into a valley. Of the countless paths up out of that valley, some might carry a Paul Atreides back into sight, but many would not. The longer we wait, the better prepared they'll be, Jessica said. Get in and strap yourself down, he said. He joined her in the ornithopter, still wrestling with the thought that this was blind ground, unseen in any prescient vision. And he realized with an abrupt sense of shock that he had been giving more and more reliance to prescient memory, and it had weakened him for this particular emergency. If you rely only on your eyes, your other senses weaken. It was a Bene Gesserit axiom. He took it to himself now, promising never again to fall into that trap if he lived through this. Paul fastened his safety harness, saw that his mother was secure, checked the aircraft. The wings were at full spread rest, their delicate metal interleavings extended. He touched the retractor bar, 
watched the wings shorten for jet boost takeoff the way Gurney Halleck had taught him. The starter switch moved easily. Dials on the instrument panel came alive as the jet pods were armed. Turbines began their low hissing. Ready? he asked. Yes. He touched the remote control for lights. Darkness blanketed them. His hand was a shadow against the luminous dials as he tripped the remote door control. Grating sounded ahead of them. A cascade of sand swished away to silence. A dusty breeze touched Paul's cheeks. He closed his door, feeling the sudden pressure. A wide patch of dust-blurred stars framed in angular darkness appeared where the door wall had been. Starlight defined a shelf beyond a suggestion of sand ripples. Paul depressed the glowing action sequence switch on his panel. The wings snapped back and down, hurling the thopter out of its nest. Power surged from the jet pods as the wings locked into lift attitude. Jessica let her hands ride lightly on the dual controls, feeling the sureness of her son's movements. She was frightened, yet exhilarated. Now, Paul's training is our only hope, she thought. His youth and swiftness. Paul fed more power to the jet pods. The thopter banked, sinking them into their seats as a dark wall lifted against the stars ahead. He gave the craft more wing, more power, another burst of lifting wing beats, and they came out over rocks, silver frosted angles and outcroppings in the starlight. The dust-reddened second moon showed itself above the horizon to their right, defining the ribbon trail of the storm. Paul's hands danced over the controls, wings snicked into beetle stubs. G-force pulled at their flesh as the craft came around in a tight bank. Jet flares behind us, Jessica said. I saw them. He slammed the power arm forward. Their thopter leaped like a frightened animal, surged southwest toward the storm and the great curve of desert. In the near distance, Paul saw scattered shadows telling where the line of rocks ended, the basement complex sinking beneath the dunes. Beyond stretched moonlit fingernail shadows, dunes diminishing one into another and above the horizon climbed the flat immensity of the storm like a wall against the stars. Something jarred the thopter. Shell burst, Jessica gasped. They're using some kind of projectile weapon. She saw a sudden animal grin on Paul's face. They seem to be avoiding their lace guns, he said. But we've no shields. Do they know that? Again the thopter shuddered. Paul twisted to peer back. Only one of them appears to be fast enough to keep up with us. He returned his attention to their course, watching the storm wall grow high in front of them. It loomed like a tangible solid. Projector launchers, rockets, all the ancient weaponry. That's one thing we'll give the Fremen, Paul whispered. The storm, Jessica said. Hadn't you better turn? What about the ship behind us? He's pulling up. Now. Paul stubbed the wings, banked hard left into the deceptively slow boiling of the storm wall, felt his cheeks pull in the G-force. They appeared to glide into a slow clouding of dust that grew heavier and heavier until it blotted out the desert and the moon. The aircraft became a long, horizontal whisper of darkness, lighted only by the green luminosity of the instrument panel. Through Jessica's mind flashed all the warnings about such storms, that they cut metal like butter, etched flesh to bone, and ate away the bones. She felt the buffeting of dust-blanketed wind. It twisted them as Paul fought the controls. She saw him chop the power, felt the ship buck. The metal around them hissed and trembled. 
Sand, Jessica shouted. She saw the negative shake of his head in the light from the panel. Not much sand this high, but she could feel them sinking deeper into the maelstrom. Paul sent the wings to their full soaring length, heard them creak with the strain. He kept his eyes fixed on the instruments, gliding by instinct, fighting for altitude. The sound of their passage diminished. The thopter began rolling off to the left. Paul focused on the glowing globe within the attitude curve, brought his craft back to level flight. Jessica had the eerie feeling that they were standing still, that all motion was external. A vague tan flowing against the windows, a rumbling hiss reminded her of the powers around them. Winds to seven or eight hundred kilometers an hour, she thought. Adrenaline edginess gnawed at her. I must not fear, she told herself, mouthing the words of the Bene Gesserit litany. Fear is the mind killer. Slowly her long years of training prevailed. Calmness returned. We have the tiger by the tail, Paul whispered. We can't go down, can't land, and I don't think I can lift us out of this. We'll have to ride it out. Calmness drained out of her. Jessica felt her teeth chattering, clamped them together. Then she heard Paul's voice, low and controlled, reciting the litany. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I will permit it to pass over me and through me. And when it has gone past me, I will turn to see fear's path. Where the fear has gone, there will be nothing. Only I will remain. Main, main, main. Fear is a 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 mind killer. Fear is a mind killer. Fear is a mind killer. Fear fear is a mind killer. Here is a fear is a mind killer. Here is a fear is a mind killer. I will face my fear. 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 I will permit it to pass over me and through me. I will permit it to permit it to I will permit it will permit it to pass over me and through me. And when it has gone past me, I will turn to see fear's path. Fear is a mind killer. 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 Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I will permit it to pass over me and through me. And when it has gone past me, I will turn to see fear's path. Where the fear has gone, there will be nothing. Only I will remain. Reciting the litany. Fear. 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 Fear is a mind killer. Fear is a mind killer. Fear is a mind. Fear is a mind killer. Fear is a mindful. Fear is a mindful. Fear is a Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I will permit it to pass over me and through me. And when it has gone past me, I will turn to see fear's path. Where the fear has gone, there will be nothing. Only I will remain. Yeah.
bro. Yo, God blame me. <laughs> MS makes some noise. Yo, they did that thing at the end by Joe. Fear is a mind. Fear is a mind killer. Fear is a mind killer. Fear is a mind. 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 Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. Permit it to pass over me and through me, and when it has gone past me, I will turn to see fear's path. Where the fear has gone, there will be nothing. Only I, only I, only I, only I, only, only I, only I, only, only I, only I will remain. What's in the box? What's in the box? Yeah. What's in the box? Here is the mind. Here is the mind. Here is the mind. Here is the mind. Here is the here is the here is the mind. Here is the mind. Here is the fear. Here is the mind. Here is the mind. Permit it to pass over me and through me, and when it has gone, when it has gone, when it has gone past me, I will turn to see fear's path. Where the fear has, where the fear, where the fear has gone, there will be nothing. Where the fear has gone, there will be nothing. Where the fear, where the fear has gone, there will be nothing. Only, only I will remain. Only I will remain. Only, only I. Will remain only, only I will remain, will remain, will remain, will remain, will remain, will remain only I will remain, will remain only I will remain, will remain where the fear has gone, there will be nothing. Only I will remain. Fear is the mind, 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 fear is the mind. Will remain, will remain, will remain. Fear is a mind, fear is a mind killer. Fear is a mind, fear is a mind, fear is a mind killer. Only I, only I, only I will remain. Yeah. What's in the box? What's in the box? Hurry. Yeah, what's cracking, MAZ? Yeah, that was Dune Wave Audio Book Club. Shit, it's getting deep. How you doing out there? How did that go for you? How did that feel for you? How was that for you, baby? You can spark up a cigarette now, like it's the 70s by Jove. <laughs> Yo. Well. 
That was intense, baby. That was intense. What up, Julian Taylor? What up, Mason? What up, Joshua Tran? What up, Andrew Gamarami? What up, the Triad? What up, Neo Stoicisms? What up, Sheila? Yeah, what's in the box? Nif, 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 Nif Hermanson says, Holy frack, that was incredible. Cindy Bailey says, Can I breathe yet? Yeah, you better. You better breathe just in case you need to, just in case necessary. Hey, thank you, FL Space Bear. Appreciate the support. God bless you, says Bravo. Thank you for the super chat and the Bravo. Yo! Roberto Sanchez, oh man, this give me goosebumps too. Yeah! Neo Stoicism says, well done, broski. Joshua Trent, happy birthday, you bad man, says only I shall remain. Only you, there can be only one. Julian Taylor says, Dune Wave 2 when? It's coming, baby, it's coming. Yeah, fear is the mind killer. Fear. Killer of minds, what up, Dread Dracon, says I can dig this. I'm glad you can dig this. This is a rare thing that happens uh, on Wednesdays here on the Meaning Stream. This is our rare, super rare thing. Nif, Nif, Nif. Herman's son says that was so incredibly good, really cathartic. I had no idea how much I needed a reminder of that. Fear is the mind killer. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. And hey, let's hear that. Yeah. D-Man. Said amazing. A moment in time that felt like forever in the best way possible. Quite. I know what you mean. I must not fear. Fear is the yeah. killer. I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. Yeah. I will face my fear. I will permit it to pass over me hey. and through me. When it has gone past, I will turn the inner eye to see its path. Where the fear has gone, there will be nothing. Hey. Only I will remain. I must not fear. Fear, fear is, is my killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. I, I will face, face my, my fear. fear. I will permit it to pass over me and through me. Hey. Gone past, I will turn the inner eye to see its path. Where the fear has gone, there will be nothing. Only I will remain. What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? Pain. Pain. What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? 
heard of animals chewing a leg to escape a trap? Whoa! That's an animal kind of trick. A human would remain in the trap, endure the pain, feigning death that he might kill the trapper and remove a threat to his kind. Why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? To determine if you're human, be silent. <laughs> It's too hard. Enough. That's too hard. Take your hand from the box, young human, and look at it. Do it. Do it. He jerked his hand from the box, stared at it, astonished. Not a mark. No sign of agony on the flesh. He held up the hand, turned it, flexed the fingers. Pain, she sniffed. A human can override any nerve in the body. Ever sift sand through a screen? We Bene Gesserit sift people to find the humans. Find the human. Find the human. Uh, 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 oh. felt that he had been infected with terrible purpose. Terrible purpose. He did not know yet what the terrible purpose was. thinking over to machines in the hopes that this would set them free. That only permitted other men with machines to enslave them. Thou shalt not make a machine the likeness of a human mind. Fear is the mind killer. 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 Only I will remain. Only I. 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 Only I.
Baby, thank you for being here. <laughs> yeah, that was dope. And then at the end, that was fun. The I, only I. Shouts out to. I can't remember the name of the guy who's reading this book either. He's a legend. Anyway, thank you all for being here. We'll be back tomorrow morning, 7 a.m. Twitch. 7 a.m. Twitch in the manner of warriors, like we always do at this time. We'll be back tomorrow night for the Thursday night super request show. Come on down and get your request played in that super MAZ fashion. Get ready for a Christmas music. We've got a Christmas joint dropping Friday. Then we've got the Christmas album dropping next week. Ho, ho, ho. Ho, ho, ho. Season is upon us by Joe. Yeah, and that's all that remains to be said. Thank you to everyone who supported tonight. Uh... That being FL Space Fair, shout out to you by Joe. Shout out to all the members. God bless you. are appreciated. Shout out to everyone who hangs out here, gives their energy, gives their righteousness, gives their passion, gives their uh, smart ideas and good vibes in the chat. Shout out to everyone locked in on the replay. What up, you? Shout out to everyone listening on the podcast feed. What up, you? Hey. If you want to support the wave, go to meaningwave.com. Get yourself some epic garments because you deserve epic garments. Get a Meaning Wave monolith because that would be the ultimate gift for someone who loves Meaning Wave. Yes, it would. Go to Bandcamp, download the music so you've got it in case Spotify decides to do some weird shit. Uh, also, you know, you know how it go. Uh, what else should you do? Oh, you know, all that stuff. All this stuff. Do this stuff. Become a member of the channel. Become a member of the Patreon. Make a donation via the link below. Pium, pium. But of course, the most important thing you can do, or uh, probably one of the most powerful things you can do, is let somebody know today, baby, Meaning Wave exists. Meaning Wave exists, and David Ewing knows that, and Nightbot knows that, and Mason knows that, and a bunch of you know that, but hey, guess what? There's people who don't know that, and maybe you should let them know today. Yeah. So once again, thank you. And all that remains for us to do is the international by five. The by five by Joe, by five. Yo, what up, Joshua Tran? Happy birthday to you, baby. Says, who else could live remix an audiobook? Epic activities only. Indeed. Indeed, Joshua Tran. What time did your birthday start? Was it not long ago? Will it still be your birthday on the morning show tomorrow? I'll play your happy birthday song if you like it, if it is. Bless up! Three, two, one, bye, bye.
Ooh, 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 ooh. God bless. Stay wavy, baby. Sweet dreams. Made of these. Who am I to disagree?